Hello, everybody. I'm Dennis Prager. Welcome to my show. So I will emote for a moment. Emotion alert. Looking at the world, watching the decimation of Ukraine is very troubling to me. I have always divided the world, as Viktor Frankl, the great author of Man's Search for Meaning, went through the Holocaust as a, an Austrian Jew psychoanalyst, asked if he hated the German race, which decimated his family, not to mention other families. And he said, no, there are only two races, the decent and the indecent. The motto of my life. There are only two races, the decent and the indecent. The, uh, the Nazis and the left disagree with that. For the Nazis, there are two races, Aryan and non-Aryan. And for the left in America, there are two races, black and white. But that's how I divide the world. And watching the indecent do whatever they want, while the allegedly decent watch, uh, if it doesn't bother you, that's not a good sign. We're watching in color, live, live from Kiev, live from Kharkov, from Lvov, live. And here's a uh, here's a hospital hit. And we'll be back after uh, these words from our sponsor. How do you think Pyongyang, Beijing, and Tehran look at this? They look at it as a, as a defeat of the West. Because they're not stupid, they're evil. It is a defeat of the West. Putin says, you will watch and do nothing, and we watch and do nothing. I'm not saying we should send in troops, but I don't don't think that not sending in troops doesn't mean we, we, we don't pay a price, and the world doesn't pay a price. Then you're fooling yourself. Now I, I hear conflicted reports. Are the sanctions going to take place? Are they taking place? Do you know the answer to that? Is there a delay? Are we still buying Russian crude? The day this despicable president named Biden got into office and cut the pipeline to Canada was the day that you could start the countdown to the invasion of Ukraine. If he didn't think that Europe was dependent upon his oil, his energy, he wouldn't have done this. 
because he knows that the, the Europeans are weak. They've been weak since World War II. So, it's correct that we cannot send in troops, but it is not correct that that is in any way a moral victory. That is a moral defeat. And consequences will be paid. America won't intervene anymore is a very, very bad thing for planet Earth. America won't intervene anymore. Three groups are, are cheered by that. The, the left in the West, in America specifically, the bad guys of the world, and the right-wing isolationists. They are cheered by those words, America won't intervene. Let the world go F itself. That's it. You know that John Kerry truly, it speaks poorly of our country that such a low life would have run for President of the United States. I was at the convention. Were you at that convention? was Secretary of State says you know uh, l let's let's hope that uh, Vladimir Putin continues to uh, engage in the battle for the environment in America you have a right to be stupid yes stupid is not enough did you did you see the quotes from uh, from this guy from John Kerry Daily Mail. John Kerry urges Putin to help fight climate change during invasion. That's the headline. You, you, you can't make this stuff up. My favorite line from Kerry, however, this is a line of the week. I thought we lived in a world that had said no to that kind of activity. What does that mean? I'm looking at my producer. What does that mean? I thought we lived in a world that had said no to that kind of activity. This is so. This is classic liberal naivete. This is this is one arena where I don't distinguish between liberal and left. Everything left of center is is childlike. They're naive. Oh my God! There are bad people doing bad things. I can't believe that. And I hope diplomacy will win. He hopes diplomacy will win. This is a gargantuan fool. Kerry was asked how concerned he was about the conflict's effect on climate change. I am very concerned about Ukraine because of the people of Ukraine and the principles that are at risk in terms of international law and trying to change boundaries of international law by force. I thought we lived in a world that said no to that kind of activity, and I hope diplomacy will win. But 
It could have a profound negative effect on the climate, obviously. You have a war, and obviously you're going to have maximum emissions consequences to the, but equally importantly, you're going to lose people's focus. You're going to lose certainty, certainly big country attention, because they will be diverted, and I think it could have a damaging impact. So, you know, I think hopefully President Putin would realize that in the northern part of his country, they used to live on 66% of the nation that was over frozen land. Now it's thawing, and his infrastructure is at risk, and the people of Russia are at risk. And so I hope President Putin will help us to stay on track with respect to what we need to do for the climate. My uh, technical director asked if he said that from his jet. Yeah, it's a fair question. These people are fanatics. The ratio in America of secular fanatics to religious fanatics is probably 100 to 1. The term is never used. I've used it all my life, and I've always asked why. Why do we only speak about religious fanatics and not secular fanatics? Do they not exist? The entire environmental movement is fanatic. The whole movement. People are being killed by an invading army, the first invasion of a whole country like that in, uh, in 70 years, since Hitler's Germany. And Bob Kerry is talking about his worries that... John Kerry, sorry, is, is talking about his worries about will we divert attention from climate change. Yeah. And he's respected in one of our two political parties. I'm Dennis Prager. The Dennis Prager Show. Yeah, so uh, John Kerry's worried about the environment. Well, uh, why would we focus on Ukraine when we can focus on the environment? These people are crazy. I mean crazy. I mean it literally. They have a, it's a derangement syndrome. The Chesterton line is, I, 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 almost every week I Zoom with my grandson, who's 11, and he's in Florida, I'm in California, so I, I usually teach him Bible, and then we talk about everything else, of course, but now I, I've moved to something, and I know my producer will love this, I'm teaching him great quotes so that he memorizes great quotes. So last, uh, last week I taught him Dostoevsky's line, where there is no God, all is permitted. And obviously I explained the, the line. But can you imagine how that will benefit him in, as he gets older, remembering these great lines? And then I taught him the great line... It's attributed to Chesterton. It's not absolutely certain that Chesterton said it, but I'm giving you the attribution. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. 
the environmentalist movement and the entire left with diversity, inclusion, equity, men give birth. This is the this is the perfect example of what happens when people stop believing in God. They believe in anything. It's not true for everybody, but it is true for most. And and conservatives who have no interest in religion or at least in preserving religion in the West need to understand their grandchildren will believe in anything. It is extremely hard to preserve conservative principles when you drop one of the mottos of the American Trinity, e pluribus unum, liberty, and in God we trust. When you drop in God we trust, it's as bad ultimately as dropping e pluribus unum or liberty. I don't care if people believe, I care if they understand how important belief is. That's that's the more important issue. A lot of people who believe in any event don't understand how important that their God is a celestial butler. It's another topic for another time. By the way, I have proof on my celestial butler thesis. My my producer will get a big kick out of this. So I I I just finished or I'm an, a few pages away from finishing a thousand page history of the Enlightenment. So I'm listening to all thousand pages, and I then buy the Kindle version to 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 keep what I want in uh, in I don't know when it was, but in medieval Europe, I'll get the exact uh, quote. In medieval Europe, there were people who, when they prayed to a saint obviously Catholics, and what they asked for didn't happen, they whipped the statue. Isn't that something? You didn't deliver my goods. And that is a perfect example of what happens when you think God is there to answer what you want. He might. I don't say he doesn't. But that's not God's purpose. God's purpose is to tell you what he wants. Oh, that's a doozy, as they say. John Kerry is an idiot, a dangerous idiot. The whole environmentalist movement is ruining the Western world. The whole G-damn pipeline from Russia to Europe is the result of the idiotic environmentalists who will crush the West for their idiotic scenario of existential death because of global warming. I hear they're having a conference on denialism next week, is that right? Yeah. At the White House? Climate denialism. Climate denialism, yeah. How to fight it. How to fight it. Here, here's, a, here's a start. Oh, ye on the left, debate. That's a good start. Show how stupid all the scientists are who think you're hysterics. Debate them. Debate Bjorn Lomborg. I'll raise tens of thousands of dollars to get your your leading... How about John Kerry versus Bjorn Lomborg? How about that? There is no amount of money that would get John Kerry to debate Bjorn Lomborg. 
A, because he's a multimillionaire. Correct. B, no, but, well, let's say we offered the money to his favorite charity, his favorite left-wing charity. We'd give it to Black Lives Matter. Although, don't need it either. <laughs> they have so much money. They don't debate. They have conferences on denialism. And people are suckered into it because they went to college and they got brainwashed. Wall Street Journal, Putin's New World Order. That's right. No, excuse me. Disorder. That's the title of their editorial. The first and overriding priority is to make Mr. Putin pay a severe price for launching this war. This means helping Ukraine resist the initial invasion and to assist in an insurgency if Russia attempts an occupation. Mr. Obama refused to give Ukraine lethal weapons after the Crimea and Donbass invasions of 2014. Donald Trump sent Javelin anti-tank weapons, but the U.S. failure to do more for the Ukrainian military before this invasion has been shameful. We continue. I'm Dennis Prager. The Dennis Prager Show. Wall Street Journal, Putin's New World Disorder. Dennis Prager here. An insurgency will be harder to sustain than many in the West think, given Russia's brutal methods. But the West should help whoever is willing to fight with intelligence, explosives, and other weapons. An occupation with steady Russian casualties would erode Mr. Putin's support at home. I was stunned to see thousands demonstrating against Putin in Russia. Uh, Now they're, uh, according to what I read, they are being charged with treason and uh, that's, if that's true if every everyone who demonstrates will be charged with treason they of course the police dispersed them arrested some of them they were peaceful but it's a dictatorship It's, uh, uh, (laughs) all these, uh, all these people speaking about, I I love this, the moral arc, you know, the moral arc is bending toward a moral future. If good guys don't fight, if good is not stronger than evil, the arc will bend toward evil. As I have said often, the most worthy recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize for the last 70 years would have been the United States military. The amount of cruelty on earth would be immeasurable if it were not for the United States military. It's not the moral arc that prevents more evil. It is good people with guns. Okay, particularly foolish article, particularly because the Atlantic is filled with foolish articles. But I subscribe because I always want to read what the others say. I actually pay my good money and get a physical copy of the Atlantic every month. 
David Frum has an article about how dangerous it is and stupid it is for people to own guns. They should all just give them up. I don't, they, they, uh, here is the reason people like him and others think that way. Why 98% of professors would agree with him. Professors and the entire intellectual elite live in a theoretical world. They do not live in the real world. That's why truckers are the opposite of professors. Truckers and professors lead completely different lives and come to completely different conclusions about life. The Canadian truckers deserve a Nobel Peace Prize, incidentally. In a good world, they would win it. It's not a good world. They live in different worlds. When you live in the world of theory, you come up with idiocy, true idiocy. Karl Marx is the best example possible. He sat in the London library his whole life, paid for his bills paid by others, and he came up with theories sitting in the London library. He didn't work a day as a proletarian. He wasn't a member of the proletariat, but he wrote about the proletariat his whole life. He wrote about something about which he had no knowledge, no experience. No, you don't need guns because we'll take them away or you just give them up because you might kill yourself with it, you might kill your family with it, and it's worthless. And, of course, the fact that only bad people will then end up with guns is not uh, I don't remember maybe it was dealt with in the article I don't I don't know if I read every word They live in a make-believe world in a make-believe world men do give birth in a make-believe world it is fair when biological males compete against biological females it's fair It's a make-believe world I know, I went to graduate school. The United States and the Soviet Union, I was taught, because that was my field, the Soviet Union. They were just two superpowers, like two scorpions in a bottle. That's the, the analogy I was given. Not good versus evil, not freedom versus tyranny. Superpower versus superpower. I wrote a piece for Fox News on this issue you just heard about. My book coming out next week. I'm thinking it's a, it's a break in publishing my Rational Bible series, the third volume of which is coming out in October. It's the Rational Passover Haggadah. Haggadah is the, is the service, 2,000 years old, of the oldest holiday in the world. And I have a piece out on ritual. You can't keep a nation or a religion alive without ritual. You know what I wrote in there that I have not said on the radio? It's the beauty of writing. It forces you to to come up with stuff. So I said, so we used to have the ritual in schools of the Pledge of Allegiance and even school prayer. Those were two rituals among others. So they, 
They now drop that. Now, remember the Chesterton quote, when people stop believing God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. The left does believe in ritual. People cannot live without ritual. So what is a, an example of a school ritual today instead of the Pledge of Allegiance or school prayer? You get up and you say your preferred pronoun. That's, that's a, that is a woke ritual. That's what, that's what happens. When, when the good of anything is shattered the bad will fill its place. No more pledge, but we do want you to get up and announce your preferred pronoun. He, she, zee, they. That's the new ritual. Anyway, that's one of the many things I discuss in this book, the rational Passover Haggadah. Even if you never heard the word Haggadah, you will love the book. Thank you for allowing me to talk about it. My heart is in that project. People don't write these books to get rich. They write these books because they think they're critical and important. If I may be personal for a moment, I have regarded my, my income from radio and other sources like speaking and writing but especially speaking it it freed me to write not for money but to write for idealism and I thank God that I have been able to do that with the rational Bible and now the rational Passover Haggadah it's a legacy I hope to leave in many years, I might add, when things look good. Um, how, why did they say healthy is a horse? Are horses known for being healthy? Just the, that's, that's the symbol of strength in the animal kingdom? Yeah. Well, I'm as healthy as a horse. President Biden has promised the toughest sanctions ever, and they had better be not targeting Russia's access to the SWIFT financial clearing system is a blunder. No kidding. Europe didn't want that. I'll talk about that more next week. Nord Stream 2 should be killed with no chance of revival. Tell that to the environmentalists. You understand what the environmentalists have done? They have made Europe dependent, especially Germany, on Russia for its energy. They have prevented the United States from being self-sufficient in energy. One of the many consequences of which is the ridiculously high price for gasoline. It is completely due to the environmentalist movement. And President Biden lied in his little speech yesterday, was it? Or the day before? I think yesterday. His speech on Ukraine and his sanctions. When he throws out the line that the oil companies should not uh, manipulate prices, yeah. How many times have they it's it's the environmentalist movement that manipulates prices. How many times? What? Have they had hearings on? That? Have they had hearings? On that? I remember the Bush era. They brought in all the heads of yeah. oil companies. Why is the price of oil so high? Yeah. 
They only do that when there's a Republican president. It can't be too high if there's a Democratic president. Nord Stream 2 is the pipeline feeding Germany and Europe from Russia. The new sanctions should also target Mr. Putin and his Kremlin mafia personally. This means financially disclosing to the world and to the Russian people the wealth of Kremlin officials and oligarchs. That would be good. The UK has a special obligation here, given Russian assets in London. These assets can be showcased and seized. The larger meaning of Russia's Ukraine invasion is that the world has entered a dangerous new era. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say the world has returned to its pre-World War II state, in which the strong take advantage of the weak and authoritarians are on the march. But for four years they called Donald Trump an authoritarian, so the, the, the word has been raped of meaning, like every word that the, that the left uses. He's an authoritarian. He was president for four years. How did he express his authoritarianism? What rights did Americans lose compared to the rights they're losing of speech under the left? Donald Trump authoritarian. It's just so now we, we call the, uh, Putin an authoritarian and people think, oh, Putin, oh. So he's their Trump in the sick world of the New York Times. The post-Cold War order has depended on U.S. economic and military power, not on the illusion of, that the international community, quote-unquote, can enforce world order. Do you know that that sentence alone should be up up at Times Square? The back in a moment. You know, if you're uh, if you're crazy about chocolate, you just can't resist if you see chocolates. I have that with coals that disagree with me. I, I do. I can't resist them. So let me go to Paul in Los Angeles. I'm even stopping reading that article to take this call. Hello, Paul. Yeah, uh, I'm just uh, calling to say you said Donald Trump wasn't an authoritarian. He absolutely wasn't authoritarian. The the good fortune is that we have structures in place through statutes and limitations. I'm sorry, through uh, through uh, government uh, separation of powers. Is what I'm trying to say through government that stopped him from being able to act on his worst impulses. But when you call a state that you lost in an election and you tell the secretary of state you need to find a certain number of votes in order to delegitimize that election and to actually strong arm an election that you lost in that particular state, that is nothing but authoritarian behavior. All so right, so asking, all right, fine. What? Listen, I, only because of time, I, I have to, yes, I asked, that's right. Your answer is 100% invalid, and I'll tell you why. And we don't have a lot of time, it's the final segment, but I wanted to hear how somebody would call him an authoritarian. Number one, what about the four years prior to the election that they called him an authoritarian? Every single time I ask a leftist why he's an authoritarian, they talk about his reaction to the election in 2020. But they called him an authoritarian all through 2020 before the election. 
all through 2019, all through 2018, all through 2017, and all through 2016. So were they lying for four years? Of course they were. And the idea, oh, he, he really meant to be an authoritarian, but American institutions prevented him. Oh, so he wanted to be an authoritarian. However, I want to tell you something. I want to fly. That's true. I really wish I could fly. I want to eat as many desserts as possible uh, and not gain any weight. What people want to do, if we even have access to their wants, which I doubt, but if we do, is not what they are. Okay? Let's all grow up, folks. The charge that he wanted to be an authoritarian is not the same as he was an authoritarian. It was a gigantic lie like the Russian collusion lie, like the America systemically racist lie. The world of the left is the world of the lie. Okay, that's important. Everything's important. It's not a good world in every way. That's why the happiness hour is coming up. Since 2016, U.S. government officials overseas and their families have reported sudden, unexplained brain injuries with symptoms of vertigo, confusion, and memory loss. The CIA, FBI, and State Department are investigating a theory that some of these officials were injured by an unseen weapon. Who might be targeting Americans and why are unknown. Incidents have been reported in Europe, Asia, and Latin America, but our reporting has found senior national security officials who say they were stricken in Washington and on the grounds of the White House. The former officials you're about to meet are revealing their experiences for the first time. They were responsible for helping to manage threats to national security. I covered any and all emerging threats, um, homeland security incidents domestically. So I covered whether it was from mass shootings to hurricanes to natural disasters. Olivia Troy was homeland security and counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. She had served in the Pentagon, deployed to Iraq, served in the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Counterterrorism Center. At the White House, she worked in the 19th century Eisenhower Executive Office Building beside the West Wing. In the summer of 2019, she was descending these stairs toward the White House when she felt she had been physically struck. But it was like this piercing feeling on the side of my head. It was like, I remember it was on the right side of my head and I, I got like vertigo. Um, I was unsteady. Um, I was, I felt nauseous. Um, I was somewhat disoriented and I was just, I remember thinking like, okay, you gotta, if you don't fall down the stairs, like you've gotta find your ground again and steady yourself. She steadied herself on a railing but the piercing feeling continued as she passed by this entrance to the West Wing. It was almost like I couldn't really process. It was like a paralyzing panic attack. I've never had that. 
Um, I've never felt anything like that. And so I, I, you know, I, I thought to myself, I mean, do I have a brain tumor out of the blue? Is, is this what happened? Am I having a stroke? Olivia Troy was inside the security perimeter, headed to her car. She went down the steps, past the West Wing, and down the closed parking lot used by presidents called West Executive Avenue. Then she passed through the Secret Service gate and out to the staff parking in the Ellipse, south of the White House. Did you ever experience anything like this again? So not immediately, um, but I did again about a year later. Um, it didn't happen on the steps. It happened uh, a, a couple times walking to my car on the Ellipse. Tell me about those times. It was a similar sensation, but this time it was um, very much the feeling of, of vertigo and dizziness, um, and I felt like I couldn't really walk. There was sort of a, it was like I had a depth perception issue where I couldn't figure out where the ground was. Um, and I would start walking and I felt like I was just going to fall right into the ground. Troy says she didn't report the episodes because she didn't want to believe she was seriously ill. And she worried what it would mean to her security clearance and career. After this interview, she reported for the first time. There is a human aspect of it of shame and do you really want to admit you're sick? Do you want to come forward and tell someone that, especially as a member of the intelligence community? I think I'm still processing all of it and thinking about like how many more people are like me who felt this. It appears there are several. A senior member of the National Security Council says he was stricken in November 2020 on the same steps by the West Wing. That former official, whose incident was first reported in The New Yorker, asked us not to name him, but he described the incident to a close colleague, John Bolton, former national security advisor. They had uh, disorientation and uh, ringing and, and, uh, in their ears and, and just a general inability to function. Bolton told us the official said he couldn't speak or think clearly. He was taken to an emergency room. The former official sent us this note, saying that more than a year later, I'm still recovering and suffering from headaches and other symptoms and have been diagnosed with two other medical conditions that are believed to be the result of the attack. He's still an outpatient at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. That was a very debilitating attack and, uh, and similar to what others have reported. Those others include Miles Taylor, also speaking for the first time. Taylor was deputy chief of staff and later chief of staff of the Trump administration Department of Homeland Security. Your job is to oversee the roughly 250,000 men and women of the department that conduct a range of missions from aviation security to border security to cybersecurity. Taylor told us he was hit with the same symptoms described by Olivia Troy. It was late one night in April 2018. I'd just become deputy chief of staff of the department, taking on some additional sensitive issues at DHS, and uh, woke up uh, in my apartment that night, a row house on Capitol Hill, to a really strange sound. The sound that woke Miles Taylor is a common experience reported by dozens of Americans 
stricken overseas. It was sort of a chirping, somewhere between what you would think is a cricket or sort of a digital sound. I didn't know what it was, but it was enough to wake me up. What was really strange about it is I went to the window, opened up my window, looked down at the street, and keep in mind, Scott, this is probably 3, 3.30 in the morning, and I see a white van, and the van's brake lights turned on, and it pulled off, and it sped away. How long did it last? This whole episode only lasted about seven to 10 minutes. How did you feel the next day? Off, uh, off, not ready to go to work, uh, you know, kind of wanting to take the day off, um, you know, sick. Then, about five weeks later, Taylor says it happened again. Next day, feeling off balance, feeling just out of it. Again, those sort of concussion-like symptoms you would have from, you know, getting knocked pretty hard in a sport. And it, that incident stood out to me because I was actually just getting ready to leave to go to Israel on a congressional delegation. We were going to meet the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, have some sensitive conversations with the Israelis on important cybersecurity issues. And I remember because I got to the airplane at Andrews Air Force Base to take off and thought, I'm already nauseous. I don't know if I can do this flight. Both Miles Taylor and Olivia Troy became critics of the Trump administration. But they told us that has nothing to do with what they see as a potential threat to national security. Taylor says he became alarmed by that threat in 2018 after he heard of another case like his in the Washington area. I became aware of a U.S. government official more senior than me who'd experienced similar episodes at their place of residence. Well, you say more senior than you. Are you talking about a cabinet-level secretary? This was an individual that, yes, was roughly at the cabinet level in the Trump administration who had had similar episodes occur. That, to me, as a Homeland Security professional, was a big blinking red light. I mean, to me, this said five-alarm fire. We may have ongoing uh, activity targeting U.S. government officials here in our country. Who was it? I can't say the individual, uh, out of respect for you know their privacy. Um, I'll leave it at that. But uh, someone senior enough to say this is more than just a fluke. More than a fluke, a pattern across two administrations. Recent injuries among U.S. officials were reported in Vienna, Austria, ahead of a trip by the vice president to Vietnam, and in India during a visit by the director of the CIA. In 2019, during a visit by President Trump to London, two members of John Bolton's national security staff became ill in a hotel. And uh, that it was on the floor where uh, it would completely taken up with personnel from the White House and White House agencies uh, struck me as being uh, pretty good evidence of a deliberate attack. You believe it was an attack? I, I don't think there's any other hypothesis when you begin to look at the the number and the pattern that we've experienced. Bolton says months later, one of those staff members hurt in London said she was overcome again, walking her dog in the Washington area. We have found she is not the only one who says they were attacked abroad and later at home. You must have thought that when you were home in America, that you were safe. I'll tell you, when I landed from China, I literally was kissing the ground. We met Robin Garfield in 2019. 
He's a Commerce Department official who told us that he, his wife, and two children were repeatedly hit in China. Your daughter was literally falling down? Yes, she fell down multiple times that day. They were evacuated and enrolled in a State Department treatment program at the University of Pennsylvania. Recently, Garfield told us his family was hit again during their year of treatment in Philadelphia. My wife catapulted out of bed uh, and sprinted down the hallway to, to check the children without any word. And she came back and she told me that a extremely loud, painful sound um, had woken her up. So they moved to a hotel where Garfield says it happened again. And we woke up around, I believe, 2 a.m. Um, with strange vibrations uh, in our bodies and a, a sound. Which led Garfield to check on his children in another room. I saw an extremely eerie scene where both were thrashing in their beds um, asleep, but both kicking and moving um, pretty aggressively. And I went over to my daughter and I put my head down next to her head and I heard a very distinct sound uh, just right there, sort of like water rushing. So I picked her up, took her in, put her with my wife and came back and I checked my son. Same sound, just right next to his head. So I picked him up, put him on my shoulder, walked over to my wife and I said, we're getting out of here. Garfield reported this to the FBI. Today, his family is posted abroad where they continue to work to improve balance, eyesight, and memory. This is the most difficult aspect of, of this whole uh, issue for me, are, are the children who've been impacted, uh, both mine as well as uh, many others. I, I personally know uh, the parents of, I believe, uh, eight other children. I can tell you I've personally seen balance issues uh, in children that have never had that uh, trouble with finding their words, stuttering, uh, and then continuing challenges around vision. One of the things that we have heard from some parents is that these are manifesting in the classroom in real, tangible ways. Persistent neurological symptoms are not the only fight these Americans have faced. Some of their early reports were dismissed as psychosomatic or illnesses connected to an infection or exposure to pesticides. Some were told that they were suffering the effects of old sports injuries. One theory had it that the sound these victims heard during the incidents was actually a particular species of cicada. It was rough. It was rough in the beginning. It was a dark place to be. We were kind of shoved aside and they wanted it to go away. This man is among those who fought for recognition. He's one of the first cases from 2016 Americans assigned to the U.S. Embassy in Cuba say they and their families were struck at home frequently in the night. He remembers the first time. And that night, all the dogs started kicking off in the neighborhood, barking, which is very unusual for them all to go in chorus. And then this just loud sound just absolutely filled my room. It felt like my head was slowly starting to get crushed. We agreed not to use his name. He is not allowed to say what federal agency he worked for. And then, then the ear, severe ear pain started. So I, I liken it to if you put a Q-tip too far and you bounce off your eardrum, well, imagine taking a sharp pencil and just kind of poke in that. 
It was very um, jarring and painful. And eventually I started blacking out. With the first public reports coming from Cuba, the affliction became known as Havana syndrome. More than two dozen embassy officials reported injury, but an early FBI report speculated it was all mass hysteria. His brain injuries left him disabled, essentially retired at the age of 36. A weighted vest helps him balance, his service dog helps with walking, and his loss of vision. Legally blind in one eye. Correct, yeah. What have the doctors told you? It's not the eye, it's the wiring. What do you mean? That the, the eye function as itself is completely correct and appropriate. It's the signal that comes out the back of the eye into the brain is where the, where the problems are. And no one really knows how to fix that. He is speaking tonight for the first time to put an end to doubt. You have not wanted to do this interview. This is probably one of my worst nightmares. Why is that? I didn't do my job because I want to be known. I did my job because I love my country and I was good at it. God, and I miss my job. I'm here because I'm tired of the gaslighting that keeps happening from the US government. I'm tired of this yo-yoing because I'm watching new colleagues and friends that I've trained with and friends that I've known for years that are being sent to these countries and coming back a shell of their former selves. We need to help them, and we need to stop this. But who is it that must be stopped? When we come back, we'll ask the director of the CIA about his investigation, and we'll look at the kind of device capable of inflicting brain injury without a trace. Brain injuries suffered by U.S. officials in Washington and abroad are the focus of an intense investigation. After starting with around 1,000 possible cases, a CIA task force has zeroed in on about two dozen that cannot be explained. The task force, which includes the FBI, is led by a CIA officer who helped find Osama bin Laden. The new director of the CIA, William Burns, told us one thing is already clear. After early disbelief, these injured Americans can no longer be doubted. The story will continue in a moment. In my first week as director, I began what had become dozens and dozens of meetings with affected officers and family members. And I've found their stories to be powerful and compelling and sometimes heartbreaking. Bill Burns had heard those stories from CIA officers who reported injuries since 2016. But this past fall, while on an official visit to India, a member of his staff was stricken in their hotel. Later, Burns personally escorted that staff member to medical evaluations. It seems that the Delhi incident might have been intended to send you a message. I don't know, and as I said, I can't comment on individual cases here as well. All I can tell you is that each story I've heard, each officer I've met with who's been affected by this, just redoubles my commitment and my determination on this issue. I have enormous faith in our officers. Bill Burns served five presidents at the State Department, rising to the highest rank in the Foreign Service. He took over CIA for President Biden last spring. 
Early on, I tripled the number of full-time medical personnel working on this issue. We streamlined access to Walter Reed, established new partnerships with other world-class medical providers, increased the number of case managers, and we're also making progress on the investigative side as well. Progress on the investigative side came this month with a report on the nature of the brain injury. What we're hearing about now is... Dr. David Relman helped lead two government panels that investigated the injuries. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. What we found was, we thought, clear evidence of an injury to the auditory and vestibular system of the brain. Everything starting with the inner ear, where humans perceive sound and sense balance, and then translate those perceptions into uh, brain electrical signals. Dr. Relman's committees focused on one subset of patients whose experiences seemed inexplicable. This subset of cases had a very unusual so-called acute sensory event, an experience that consisted of the abrupt onset of intense pressure or vibration in the face or head sometimes with the abrupt onset of sound. Sound like that described by the officials who spoke to us. And then this just loud sound just absolutely filled my room. This former official who we agreed not to name recorded the sound at his home in Havana. Before we play it, understand that the sound does not cause the injury. It is a byproduct, like the sound of a gun which is not what does the harm. Here's what he recorded. The injured officials we spoke with said the sound, or a feeling of pressure, came from one direction and focused in one location. It was a, a continuous sound and uh, one that only changed based on my locations. They left it dissipated, they returned, it recurred. That to us was something that we had never heard of. We could not explain by known medical or environmental conditions. And to us deserved our special attention in an effort to understand what might be the plausible mechanism. That mechanism, Dr. Railman's committees concluded, was most likely pulsed electromagnetic energy. In other words, a focused beam of microwaves fired from a distance. I think the best explanation, the most plausible, is that it's a high-power microwave weapon. James Benford is a physicist and leading authority on microwaves. He was not part of the government studies, but he co-wrote the book on microwave transmission. These are portable microwave transmitters of the kind that could damage the tissues of the brain. There are many kinds, and they can go anywhere in size from a suitcase all the way up to a large tractor-trailer unit. And the bigger the device, the longer the range. This would be able to transmit its microwave energy through the wall of a van, the wall of a home, something like that? Vans have windows. Microwaves go through glass. They go through brick. They go through practically everything. The technology, Benford told us, has been studied more than 50 years. It's been developed widely in perhaps a dozen countries. 
the primary countries are the United States, Russia, and China. The implications of a mechanism like that suggest something different about the world now involving the loss of norms. Humans were affected in a serious fashion, and for that very reason alone, we have to understand this better. The investigation is also trying to understand who could be behind this and their motive. Microwaves can be a tool for spies. Some devices are capable of collecting data remotely from phones and computers. Whatever is causing the brain injuries, a CIA interim report last month said there is no evidence of a massive global campaign to attack Americans. The interim CIA report last month said, we assess it unlikely that a foreign actor, including Russia, is conducting a sustained worldwide campaign harming U.S. personnel with a weapon or a mechanism. Do you mean to say that no one was harmed by a hostile actor? Not at all. The intelligence community assesses now that there's not a single cause that it would explain the more than a thousand incidents that have been reported since Havana in 2016. We've also not yet been able to link a foreign state actor or an external device or mechanism to any of those cases. This is the world's preeminent intelligence agency. Why is this so hard to figure out? It's a very complicated issue, um, you know, dealing with a whole range of incidents which have, you know, different kinds of explanations for them as well. It's a very charged issue emotionally as well. I understand that very clearly. And that's what, you know, makes me even more determined, not only to ensure people get the care that they deserve, but also that we get to the bottom of this. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton fears there is a threat to the highest levels of government given the two national security officials who say they were overcome on West Executive Avenue by the West Wing inside the White House gates. If we were at war and an adversary could disable the president and his top advisors or commanders in the field, it could render us extraordinarily vulnerable. Uh, we don't know that that's the threat we're facing, but I would much rather focus on finding out the answer now rather than finding out uh, later when it may be too late. Former Homeland Security Chief of Staff Miles Taylor says he believes he was targeted in two mysterious incidents at his Washington home. Someone is trying to send us a message that they can strike blows against us and we can't strike back. That line being crossed into the United States takes this in some ways uh, just shy of the realm of warfare. Is the national security structure in danger of being incapacitated during a time of crisis? No, I don't think that's the case. Um, but if people are being overcome on West Executive Avenue, is that an indication that the White House and its grounds are no longer safe? No, I don't believe that's the case. What it is an indication of is that we need to take each of these reported incidents very seriously. And as a government, and this is a government-wide effort, uh, to pour the very best resources we have into this. What line is crossed if a hostile actor is doing this in Washington, D.C.? Oh, that, that would be a pretty profound line to be crossed if, in fact, that were the case, if we were ever, ever able to develop concrete evidence that that were the case but we do not have evidence of that at this point. You understand how frustrating your comments must be 
to some of these people who believe they know exactly what happened to them on what day and at what time and what happened to their children. And yet the director of the CIA is saying, we can't connect the dots. We don't know enough yet. We're not at a position yet where we can offer hard evidence that would connect all those dots. But as I said, we're not done yet. We still have a lot of work to do. And what I've said directly to a number of those officers is my promise is that I am absolutely committed uh, to exhausting every alternative so that we can provide the kind of answers that we owe them. This past summer in Geneva, President Biden raised the issue with Russian President Putin. The Russians deny they're involved. The Secret Service declined to comment on White House security. The iron gates of West Executive Avenue by the West Wing went up in 1951 after the attempted assassination of Harry Truman. 70 years later, there is evidence the gates may have been breached by an invisible threat.